Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke, and I again want to thank Gary for reading for us this morning in the pinch. Thank you so much, sir. We appreciate that. Love to see more of our men get up here and join us in doing that. Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 57 through 62 as we finally close out that chapter. We've been in it for some time. Excuses, excuses, excuses. How many love people who make excuses? Do you know someone, don't raise your hand, don't prod your, your spouse, but someone who just makes excuses for all sorts of things. I can do that when or well, uh, I didn't. Well, five employees, <clears throat> if you can imagine, are gathered in a break room during lunch. They're sitting around as employees would do, and they begin just to talk about life and work and just things in general. Sam is disillusioned with life as a whole. Nothing has turned out as he planned it back before he left his family and went to college. His whole life was, his whole life plan went down the tubes when he graduated and realized they had tens of thousands of dollars in school debt. He had been working to pay it off, but the interest keeps piling up, and it doesn't seem to be make, he doesn't seem to be making any headway in his life, in his workplace, and in his career, and, and accumulating the wealth that he so much desired and planned to do when he was a young man. Laura is discouraged with her husband, as he never seems to have time for her and the kids. She took a job to help pay the bills, and that has left less times with her two little girls. It seems like all of her paycheck goes to paying for child care. George then opens up and complains that his wife has become distracted from her duties at home and with the kids. It seems that she's always on the phone, checking Facebook, Instagram, and other trivial pursuits. At first, it was nice to see her get some quiet time alone for herself, but now it's become apparent that the kids are being neglected. Nancy sighs in desperation as she confesses that even though things are going well at work, it seems that her boss is continually diverting her from the most important things at work and focusing on things that are low priority, and anything that's important is just getting left to the edges. Unfortunately, she's afraid to confront him as she knows how he gets when he's approached and confronted himself. He gets very angry. Then there's Lance. He's sitting there and he's listening quietly to his co-workers. And he wonders if he should offer some biblical advice. As a Christian, he wants to humbly give them some advice, some, some things that might help them, some things for them to, to, uh, to, to dwell on, to consider, but he recognizes that unasked for advice is unheeded advice. You ever seen that? Lance is not perfect, but he's a follower of Christ. And he recognizes the importance to be devoted in all areas of his life to the Bible, whether it's his marriage, his children, his work, his entertainment, etc. It is hard work being devoted into all those instances, but it's rewarding. And should I say, as every other movie and stuff, all characters are not based on anyone in this church. Any, any correlation is just per chance. But you see someone who's disillusioned, discouraged, distracted, diverted, and then one who's devoted. 
Last week, Jesus began his journey towards Jerusalem. We looked and his divine appointment at the cross. And with his last days close at hand, Jesus is focusing on instructing his disciples in preparation for his ascension to heaven. He knows that one day he's going to be gone. These are his last lectures, as we put it last week. Last week we read that since he was rejected by one of the villages of Samaria, he's now going to continue to Jerusalem by taking the longer route around by going around Samaria, by passing that whole area. But as we come to Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, the the end of that chapter, Jesus is going to engage in conversation with three people. We're going to look at three dialogues about the cost of discipleship, about what does discipleship mean? with three different people as they're walking along the road. So with that, let's read Luke chapter 9. It's here on the monitor, but again, I I pray that you have your Bibles with you as well, (coughs) so you can follow along. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If you you have a Bible, underline that phrase. That's going to be important. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his plow or his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So Father... Give us wisdom and discernment as we take this ancient text and read it today and and try to transpose the spiritual truths, find out what they are and then what they are and how we're to apply them to to our lives. Give us wisdom, discernment, as I said. Let your Holy Spirit have free reign. Let us be free of distraction. And Lord, let us focus on your word, for we truly want to be disciples of you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, we're going to look at three dialogues real quick as just observations. The first dialogue consists of a bold statement, <clears throat> excuse me, by one of the prospective disciples. Remember, he declares, I will follow you wherever you go. This is kind of like the Peter, right? No matter what you do, I'll die with you. Well, this is this, this disciple. I'll go wherever you go. This person ready, is ready to abandon everything he has, all that he has, in order to follow Jesus which is demanded of every true disciple of Christ, as we've read already. Jesus had already declared in verse 27 of that chapter, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and then what? Then follow me. Now, whether this person had heard that qualification, we are not told, but after this fearless declaration, Jesus, as he's prone to do, bursts his bubble, so to speak, when he answers, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The first, I'm going to look at that phrase, the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's wanting to follow the Son of Man. Now, this is Jesus' favorite description of himself. He uses it 82 times in the New Testament alone. It is meant from man. It pointed to his identity and ministry as the humble servant of Isaiah who has come to forgive sinners. He's also the suffering servant whose atoning death and resurrection will redeem his people, liberate them, and show the year of the favor of the Lord. It also points to the glorious king and judge who will return to establish his kingdom 
on earth. We see this very clearly as you and I look at Daniel chapter 7 here on the monitor. We see that the Son of Man is someone special. Daniel says in his vision, I saw in the night vision, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancients of days, which is speaking of God the Father. And he was presented before him. And to him was to given glory or dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. (coughs) His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall never or not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is this this end of the the end end of time ruler who will rule forever through all power. And all peoples, all nations, all tongues will serve this Son of Man. Well, Jesus is saying, I am that Son of Man. You should be following me. I'm the one who has all power, all all authority. I am the one who, who by my word created all that there is, both visible and invisible. So to follow him is a good thing, but Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 1, verse 51, when he's talking to one of his earlier disciples, Nathaniel, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open if you follow me, and you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what we see is Jesus is something much more than just from man, but he's also from God. And Jesus wants to make sure that this person that's wanting to follow Christ understands completely what they're signing up for. Jesus is more than just an ordinary, regular rabbi or teacher. He is the son of man, the son of God, whose kingdom is forever. He is one that's worth following. But he also wants him to understand that this gig has no fringe benefits. There is no medical, no dental, no vision uh, benefits. There is no vacations, there's no sick days, and even no guarantee that they will be spending the night underneath a roof. They truly don't know where their next meal will come from. If the very Son of Man, the Son of God, will need to sacrifice personal comfort and personal riches, if he must do this, so will his disciples. Theologian Joel Green notes that as a traveler, Jesus is dependent on the hospitality of others. We don't think of Jesus that that. We think he can just make stones into bread, right? But he refused to do so. If he can make water out of wine, he can make water out of anything. So Jesus would always have some. But there were times that Jesus slept out in the open with just a rock for a pillow. He says, all of nature has a place that God has provided for them. But for us, we will spend many times without personal comfort and without the things that you would normally have in a civilized society. Without this hospitality, Jesus was homeless. Remember, they go into that Samaritan village. Why? To make preparations. They say, well, we don't want anything to do with you. What does he do? He doesn't go to the hotel down the street. There are no hotels. There are no motels. There's no Airbnbs. He just goes down to the next village, praying that someone will give him hospitality. Jesus had already taught his disciples in Matthew 6. You know this one. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? And all these things will be added. So Jesus is living this out in his earthly public ministry. He is walking through the area, not knowing where he's going to spend the next day or that evening. And he wants his disciples to know, if you're signing up to be with me, you need to understand what you're signing up for. Now, the next two dialogues follow an invitation or a petition to follow Jesus with the prospect, with those that are hearing it, requesting to delay their discipleship until something is accomplished. So you're going to see it. They want to delay. Yeah, I'll follow you, but later. Okay, this is what we're going to see here. So let's move to the second dialogue. Here, the prospective disciple appeals for a delay to follow Jesus in order to bury his father. I'll follow you, but let me first go bury my father. Now, this seems at a very reasonable uh, request, does it not? I mean, it just seems very reasonable, something that everyone would want to do. Walter Leefield notes that it was a religious, social, and family obligation to provide a suitable funeral for one's father. So this was something that was expected. And Jesus' response seems really pretty harsh at first glance. Look at it once again. Leave the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom kingdom of God. Again, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim. Don't worry about burying your your dad. You need to just continue and follow me. Now, some have tried to lessen the impact And you know what? We need to stop doing that, by the way. We need to lessen the impact and the qualifications and the commands of Scripture. Some of them try to lessen the impact by replaying that that Jesus was actually referring to those that were spiritually dead. If you're spiritually dead, let them bury their physical dead. But if you're spiritually alive, then you need to follow Christ. Others would say, well, no, what he's really talking about is in the Jewish religion, uh, what they would do in the tradition, they would bury someone very quickly. They would then wait 12 months, was a time of, 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 of mourning. Then they would dig that person up, not dig them up because they didn't do, they, they would then take them back out of the grave, and then they would collect their bones, put it in a box, and then put it back in. So either this man would say, let me go bury my father, and Jesus says, no, listen, if you're spiritually alive... Let the dead bury the dead. Or this man was saying, well, let me wait 12 months to when I I rebury him, and then that's the official mourning period is done. Some would say, well, this man was saying, well, his dad's not dead yet, and he wants to make sure he gets an inheritance, and if he leaves early, he won't get his inheritance. Uh, We try to lessen, but I think we just need to let it stand where it stands. See, what Jesus is really saying here is any one of these exclamations, by the way, could be true. We, we just don't really know. Not much is given here. But it's better just to leave it a stand as harsh as it stands. As the ESV commentary notes, that in what Jesus is saying here is that your family is subordinated to the kingdom. Now, you don't want to hear that, right? We, none of us want to hear that. What Jesus is saying is actually the kingdom of God following me is more important than your family. It's more important is the call of Christ. Now, in the third dialogue, the prospective disciple wants to make a bargain with Jesus. Look at verse 61. I'll follow you, Lord. I believe you're someone worth following. I want want to go with you. 
I want to learn from you. I want to, I want to travel with you. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Again, not an unreasonable request. One that many of us might make if we were heading off to a new city or a new job, uh, college, or leaving our family. Let us say goodbye. Let, let's say farewell. However, once again, Jesus responds by admonishing him. Look at the verse. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, that's tough words there. If you are, if you are not fit for the kingdom, if you're looking back, you're not qualified. You're not up to the task is what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus here is painting a familiar and ordinary word picture for these people and for us to kind of understand. To drive home the point that to follow him requires one to stay focused and committed to the mission and task at hand, even at the cost of personal relationships. The theologian E.E. Bishop writes, he describes the plowman is concentrated on the furrow. So you can imagine, you know, an oxen and they have those old type of you know, plows and he, and he wants to go straight. You don't want a plow that's all over the place. So you're going straight. So he needs to focus straight with one hand. He has it on the, on the plow and his right hand, he lightly has the goat or the, or, or the, uh, the whip to keep the, the oxen from going, going straight. And what he's painting, it was one who looks back. He's going to be going all over the place. You, you, you and I can understand that. Anyone else like me has trouble backing up? I had to get a CDL one time to drive a bus for school. I hated it. When I came to California, they asked if I wanted my bus license. I said, no way. You take it, burn it. But I had the most difficult time backing up. And when I went to go take the, the test, you had to back up and there was cones. And these cones were supposed to be children. Well, I tell you what, I murdered a bunch of children that day. I mean, it was terrible. I have, some, and even today with the car, I have some type, it is some type of oppression that I have that when I turn to go backwards, I cannot keep in a straight line. I just can't do I can't tell you how many times I have to back up when I'm trying to do that. It's just so much trouble. And now what's nice is you have these cameras, right? And the camera actually gives you like yellow lines, but I still struggle with those yellow lines. I can't tell me how many times I'm backing up like at the place to get water, right? And I want to make it easy. And I'm, oh man, I can't get out. And I got to pull up. And people just look at me like something's wrong. With me. But I have some type of mental thing that's, that I struggle backing up because I'm all over the place. It's the same way. It's that we recognize when we look back, we wind up not focusing what's on front behind, or in front of us. Looking away could cause a crooked furrow. In this picture, this is also illustrated by the runner who's running a race. And what they tell you is for those of you runners, you don't look back to look back to see where your 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 uh, competition is could lead you to a lane disqualification by moving one way to the other. It can lose you by slowing you down because you don't run as fast when you turn around. These are things that we're taught not to do is we need to look straight ahead. And scripture gives us the cost and the consequences of some people in Scripture that looked back, that looked behind. Let me give you a couple of them. Remember Lot's wife? How many know the story of Lot's wife? Okay, so I know if I have to go how much in detail. Lot's wife, Sodom and Gomorrah, you all heard of that story. Lot and his family have moved into Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a wicked city, just a terrible one. God says, I am going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They are so wicked. 
So God sends some angels to go there. You know the old, the terrible story that happens there. And so Lot and his wife are trying to get out. His, his, his son-in-laws laugh at him, say, we don't believe you. His wife doesn't want to leave. His daughters don't want to leave. Eventually the angels have to grab his family and drag them out to the city. The angels urged Lot in Genesis chapter 19. Take your wife and your two daughters uh, who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment. Get out or you're going to die. But then we look and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities around Sodom and Gomorrah and what grew on the ground. But in verse 26 of Genesis 19, we read this sad story. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became what? A pillar of salt, instantly dead. And if you know the rest of that story, that there's a family tragedy that happens with Lot and his daughters. Just a terrible time, which still affects us today. We think about the Hebrew children in the wilderness. You and I read these stories the last few years in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. How time and time again, they were delivered from Egypt. They were delivered from Pharaoh. They were delivered from slavery. But time and time again, they would say, well, this life is too difficult. Wish that we were dead. We'd be better off dead. Let us go back to Egypt. It's better to be under slavery than to be free here without anything to eat and a drink. Then we think of Elisha's servant, one that you may not have heard of, one that's not as familiar. It's found in 2 Kings, and I encourage you to to read this story sometime. It's a a story of Naaman. Uh, He comes to Elijah, or Elisha, excuse me, and he wants to be healed. He has leprosy. And he says, well, go into the river Jordan and dunk yourself seven times, and on the seventh time, you will be clean. And as we read the story, it happens. Naaman doesn't want to do this, but finally he does so. But there is a servant of Elijah named Jehazi. I may not get that right, so we'll say Jehazi, and we'll try to be at least consistent, consistently wrong. It says, see my master. And Naaman, now let me give you another point. His Naaman then says, once he's, once he's free from leprosy, he says, let me give you some, some, a, a, a reward. Some, some cash, some treasure, some clothing. And, and Elisha says, no, it is God who's healed you, not me. He's, I don't want any, but guess what? Gehazi says, or Jehazi says, uh, wait a second. Uh, no, I, I think I, we want that. So Elisha goes off and Jehazi, or whatever his name is, he, his servant then heads off towards Naaman. and says, my master doesn't know what he's doing. I'm going to go and say that he's changed his mind. So he meets Naaman. Naaman says, what are you doing? What kind of... Well, my master's changed my mind. He wants reward now. He gives it to him. The servant takes it to his own house. He hides them. We find the story then. He says, where have you been? Elisha asks him. He says, your servant says, I went nowhere. He says, did not your heart go where the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments? Was it a time to do this? Did you accept this from him? No, no, I didn't do that. He says, therefore, because you have done this, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from the presence, a leper like snow. Why? Because he looked back. He longed for something other than the things of Yahweh. 
Now, in all three cases, we see the consequences was a looking and a longing rather than for the things that were not of God. In every one of the dialogues above that we just looked at, the prospective disciple proclaims a desire to follow Christ. They all believe that Jesus was someone worth following, but they were rash with their decision. They just want to follow him because they, they want to be part of what's ever going on. But through these conversations, the Holy Spirit is instructing you and I of the important truth about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And here we need to get to the crux of the matter. Then, as even now, too many, now listen to me, please stay with me. Too many people have entered into a one-sided agreement with Jesus. One-sided, and they say that they, that they want to make the rules. They want to decide on the guidelines. They want to decide on what the qualifications, as if the decision to follow Christ is on par with deciding what baseball team you're going to root for or what type of shoes you're going to buy at the mall. Too many professed Christ want to make one-sided agreements with God. They want to bargain. They want to make the, the rules. They want to set the boundaries of what it means to be a disciple. But we forget that Jesus gave us a warning that we must pay attention to in Matthew chapter 7. You'll see it here on the monitor. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let that just sit there for a moment. Not everyone who professes to be a Christian is truly a Christian. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that is a true disciple. It says, on that day, speaking of the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus declared to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Jesus says, no, you didn't. You didn't cast anyone out. You, you, you didn't do these great works. No, these people did do these great works. But they still didn't know Christ. They were not disciples of him. And so their eternity is to be cast out of the presence of the Son of Man. There are different types of people who decide to follow Jesus Christ in Scripture. There's thrill seekers. There's those who are curious. They're onlookers and they want to just be part of the action, see what's going on. There was those that were seeking, in, even in his main disciples, there was those who were seeking a political or religious or cultural advantage along with those who truly believed him. And let me tell you, today is no different. People profess to be Christians for all sorts of reasons but it doesn't mean that they're truly Christians. I dare say, and I pray it may not be so, but it could be that even in our small community or those that are watching later on Facebook or video, whatever, there may be many of you who may profess Christ, but you truly are not. And that's the warning we want to give out. That's what Jesus is saying, is not all who say they're my disciple are. You see, we live in a day of easy believism, 
of people that say, well, all I have to do is say that I accepted Christ or I believe in Jesus, and then that's okay. I can do that at the age of seven at VBS or junior church or whatnot, and I can get baptized, and then I'm saved no matter what I do. I can live my life any way I want. I, I get this magazine called Grace uh, Something, and it's an easy believism group. I, they don't like that term. We give it to them. They give us other terms that we don't like, so we just live with it. But there's one pastor in there who teaches that if one moment, all it takes is one, one moment for you to say, I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and then one minute later you can live life all you want, and you're still saved. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter how you live your life. As long as at one time you said Jesus is Lord. The Bible tells us that the demons know that Jesus is Lord. But at least they tremble. So we have many who believe, well, I got saved. It's here in my Bible. I was saved on September, uh, what was mine? September 10th, 1972. As if I'm going to take that Bible and show Jesus. My mom wrote this in here. And I'm a good independent fundamental Baptist. I was saved twice and baptized twice. So I must be saved. I'm sorry, there's no power in that. There's no proof in that. There are many who have professed Christ, but sadly, they are not truly following Christ, but caught up in what sociologists have called the moralistic therapeutic deism. Big word. We've looked at a lot, quite a bit with the American gospel in our adult court class. This is a belief that says here, I believe you have it on the monitor, that there's a God. They believe a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So they believe in a God. There may be many different gods, but there is at least a God who created all things. They also believe that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, and also the same things that you learn in preschool and kindergarten. Remember that one psychologist, that one, that one I think it was a rabbi, who, who wrote a book, Everything That I Need to Know in Life I Learned in Kindergarten. Put your toys back. Be nice to others. Don't hit others. Share. So it's kind of a moral world in which we're just nice and kind, but now we're in a world, what do you do now when your world, when, when those things really don't matter? Those, those things are all changing. Or the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Today there are multiple, hundreds of thousands of messages that are giving that says God wants you to be happy. God has a snapshot of you in his wallet. All God is doing is thinking about you today. He just wants to every Friday to be, or he wants every day to be like Friday. But what if Friday is it's the 13th? Then what are you going to do? Or they believe that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life. He's just there except when God is needed to resolve a problem. He's a genie in a bottle. And when I need him, I'll pop him out and put him back where he's at. That's where many believe. And number five, the good people go to heaven when they die. But who is good? Jesus even asked that. Why do you call me good? There's only one that is good, and that's the Father. Let me tell you, big look in the mirror. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. We sung that in our first song, Grace Alone. You and I are stumbling about with rocks and with a head full of rocks, a heart full of stone. 
So let me share with you, just because you profess Christ does not make you a disciple of Christ. To be truly a disciple of Christ is to follow him. It demands so much more than just a a, a pronouncement, an announcement, or just saying, hey, I believe Jesus is alive, or I believe there's a God, or I try to be good. Joel Green, a theologian, writes that a discipleship requires a reorganization of former alliances. In other words, that's that old song, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The places I used to go, I don't go there anymore. The people I used to hang with, I don't go with them anymore. There's a reorganization of your alliances and of your priorities. The New American Commentary notes that discipleship involves, listen this, the sacrifice of comfort and security, the sacrifice of family ties and family affections. We'll see this as we get into Luke chapter 16. A disciple's priorities, listen to this, a disciple's, if you're making notes, a disciple's priorities is to sacrifice and proclaim and focus on the kingdom of God. Hence why I had you underline that. Don't go bury your dead. Go instead, proclaim the kingdom of God. We do that through our church. Our vision is to to develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. I don't want just good people in our church. We want you to seek the kingdom of God. I don't want people that are here every Sunday. I mean, I do, but I don't want you to be here just because you're afraid I'm going to call you and ask where you are or I'm going to check up on your Facebook or your Twitter or your Instagram account. And by the way, don't start unfriending me just so I don't know where you're at either. But here's the thing is, is, is I forgot what I'm talking about here, is our vision is to develop a lifelong seeker of the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. That's what God has called us to do. Now we do that by doing the Great Commission, right? To teach, to to baptize, and and to, to develop people. Why? We do that by reaching up and worshiping and reaching out, by loving each other and reaching in, by by doing life development, by helping each other grow to become more like Christ. You see, this passage is teaching us, as you look here on the monitor. That following Christ demands an uncompromising commitment. So let me ask you, are you ready to give that to him? Before you say you're a Christian, are you ready to give him an uncompromising commitment? And before you say yes, amen, let's look what he's saying here through scripture. Number one, following Jesus comes with suffering. That is realized through rejection and sacrifice, through ridicule. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, we read that the Old Testament saints all died in faith, trusting him, not having received the things promised. Now, you and I know how it is when someone promises something and yet they do not give it to us. We get angry. But here the Old Testament is telling us that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, they never received the promise that they were given until they hit eternity. So what we want to do when someone promises something and they fail to meet that expectation, what do we do? We write them off, right? We find that's enough. I'm out of here. Sarah Nora. That's not how you pronounce that. Where there it goes. I just need to mic all of you so it comes on the tape, too. There are people here, by the way, if you're watching, who do know how to pronounce the things that I don't. So it's kind of that thing that we do here at this church. Is we need to recognize that following Christ will invite suffering. Salvation comes through suffering. 
We live in a day and age where we want to avoid it like the plague, but we need to embrace suffering. That's what he tells us. To count it all joy when you find device, uh, device, diverse trials and suffering. Number two, following Jesus demands a reordering of your priorities. And this is where you and I are stumbling and tripping up on our own feet. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus surprisingly remarked to a group of people who said, hey, your mom and your mother and your sis, uh, brothers are here. And Jesus said, who's my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my brothers and mother. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So Jesus will only claim you if he says, these people are doing my will, the will of the father. For those truly are disciples of Christ. That's the uncompromising commitment. And then third, is following Jesus demands an unwavering focus on the kingdom of God. I think there's so many of us that are plowing furrows that are going in all sorts of directions and curving all over because we continually look back. In 2 Timothy 2.4, the Apostle Paul reminds us that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his, since his aim is to please him who has enlisted him. Too many of you are, are diverted. You, you, you've got your eyes on the wrong thing. You may say, I profess Christ, but your life is about looking back and longing for those things that you left behind or that Jesus wants you to put aside. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6, if you would, please. There are many reasons why people choose not to follow Christ. Many reasons. Personal comfort personal riches they desire or just personal relationships. They don't, they don't want to break them up to name just a few. But I'm here to tell you this morning is that to follow Jesus is going to require you to surrender all of these for the sake of serving Christ. One might wonder why Jesus answered so harshly to these three prospective disciples. In response, look at me at verse 23 of John chapter 6. Verse 23. Now when Jesus was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. Great, great word. Many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. So they believed in him because of his miracle working power. Not because of his teaching, not because of his identity, but the fact that he could do a lot of miracles. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So when Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, it doesn't matter what you may protest, but Lord, I went to church on Sundays. I gave tithes during Sundays. I, I try to teach my kids about it. I try to do good things. He knows what's inside your heart. He knows if your heart is matching up with your mouth. He knows if you truly are. He knows what is inside you. You see, Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our true level of commitment, whether you can fool me, and many of you can, but only Christ truly knows if you are or not. He also knows who are truly his. Look down at verse 37 
of John chapter 6, a wonderful portion of scripture. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's a wonderful promise that those who truly count the cost and make that uncompromising commitment, he says, you will never be cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, speaking of the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For those who are truly disciples of Christ, he says he will raise us up from the dead and we will reign with him in eternity, with the Son of Man, dominion forever and ever. For this is the will of the Father, continuing on. And then underline this next phrase, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall what? Have eternal life. That's a true disciple who looks on Jesus and says, that's the man that I want to follow, gives up everything and follows Him. Uncompromising commitment. And He says this promise, I will raise Him up on the last day. This is a wonderful promise. And I pray that there is everyone here, that everyone here, everyone who watches this video, hears my voice, that you have accepted Christ. If not, I pray that you would do so. Would you see the Father? Would you see the Son? Would you call on Him? Would you count the cost? Would you abandon all? Would you follow Him and truly become His disciples? That we may spend eternity together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's my cry for you. The question for you today is, though, is what are you looking back at? What are you longing for? What's your, what's your excuse? What is stopping you from serving God unwavering? For many of us, there's family, work, other priorities. All of us need to reorder those. There is none here that is perfectly following Christ. What is it that keeps you from abandoning all to follow Christ? What is more valuable to you than Christ or the kingdom of God? And you say, Rob, I just don't know. I I don't understand. I don't know how to answer that question. I I feel that I profess Christ. I feel that I'm a disciple of Christ. I feel that I'm doing it all. Well, Well, here's one thing. What is it that you're proclaiming? Are you proclaiming the kingdom of God? You say, well, again, you're asking a question I don't know how to understand. I don't know how to evaluate that. I feel that I am. Well, what are you proclaiming? What you are proclaiming will show, will be displayed in your checkbook and your purchases. Is it for the kingdom of Rob? The kingdom of God. Now, there's a balance there. You know, as Rob, Rob is a husband. He has, he has children. He has grandchildren. So there's, there's a way in which God tells, gives me money to be able to do those things because he who does not take care of his family is worse than a heathen, right? So that's part of the kingdom of God. But is it all just for entertainment? What, what do I give to advance the kingdom of God as far as the church and for our missionaries and for our ministries? How, what are you proclaiming through your scheduling, your calendar priorities? How are you spending your time? Is it about you, your family? What time are you, you making for church? What time are you making for the community of Christ? How many Sundays will you miss this year because you're going to Disneyland or, or Knott's Berry Farm or whatnot or just, hey, just doing something at the beach? I need some family time. 
This is family time. This is the time that we come together. You say, I profess Christ, but Christ is not that important that I want to give up Disneyland or a day off or to sleep in. We're cutting to the bone here. What are you proclaiming through your Twitter, through your Facebook and your Instagram accounts? Are you proclaiming Christ and the kingdom of God or is it about what you ate, how you dressed, where you're at, the nature? Do you use it to tell others about Christ, what Christ is doing for you? What about your entertainment and pleasure pursuits? What's in your Netflix queue? What's on Hulu? How much time are you spending on TV and reading and doing other things that are about you and, and, and taking away from uh, uh, sending out and just passing out flyers with me on a Saturday or going to Love Orange and, and doing something for somebody or, or going out and just saying, hey, let's, let's share with Christ. Now, now, I'm guilty here. And that's the only reason I put these things down there because I know my own foibles, my own things in which gets in my way of serving Christ. Now, I have, a, I have an advantage than to most of you because you pay me to spend time doing things that are scripturally and, and more spiritual. It doesn't mean that I can always do them in that spirit. And so I understand that many times you at work, it becomes difficult. You're working 40, 50 hours a day, then you're traveling long periods, and then you want to spend your family time. It's like, I don't have any time. I'm just exhausted to give to God. But you have to realize that your eight hours of work is also kingdom work. Your two-hour drive each day back and forth is kingdom work. Your family time is kingdom work. So it's not about us taking time and saying, well, what do I left to give church? No, all of that time is kingdom work. Are you spending that time in your drive just listening and bringing in the things of God and working on discipling yourself? Your family time, are you using it to catechize your children, teaching them the things of God, the times with your, your spouse? Far too many professing Christians have allowed the cares of this world <clears throat> to disillusion, to discourage, to distract, and to divert them from the mission. Luke, uh, Jesus warned in Luke chapter 8, our last chapter, that as for what fell among the thorns, speaking about the soil, said when the seeds fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Landon took that through us also as well. And aptly, he showed us those people are not true Christians. But unfortunately, that may be a good portion I dare say close to a majority of churches today of people who are just going through the motions. Instead, you and I need to be on a mission, not of being disillusioned, diverted, discouraged. But you and I need to be on a mission that's devoted to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The heart that loves God and loves our neighbors. Jesus has given us authority to make disciples and then to teach them all that Jesus has commanded through his word. You and I need to get serious about our calling as our time is being shortened as each moment goes. You and I have less time on this earth than when we walked in this morning. And one day you will stand before God and give an account of every moment of your life. 
Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. Without Christ, <coughs> excuse me, without Christ, our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, and even our favorite checkout person in the grocery store, our favorite servers at our restaurant, and so on, have no hope. Let me give you a few things to consider as we come to a close. I know I've been beating up on you for a little bit. But I want to share with you that God has a wonderful gift for his disciples, those that have truly followed him. As disciples, you and I need to know the precepts of God. We need to know the precepts of God. Those are the, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. Do this, do that, do that. You and I need to know what God's word says. We need to spend our time making sure that we know them, that our, that our spouses know them, that our children know them. We, we share those with others so that they too may know what the precepts of God. What is it that God demands of us, requires of us? As disciples, we need to live out the principles that are found in the word of God. Hence why in, in, in our adult core class, we're understanding uh, critical race theory and intersectionality. How are we to think on these things? How are we to live out the principles of the word of God? And then number three, as disciples, we need to be persons that reflect the image of Christ. Know, do, and be. Very simple. Know, do, and be. He has saved us so that we may be conformed to the image of his son. Our lives ought to be marked by one who is uncompromisingly committed to the work of Christ. They shall know you are my disciples by your what? Love for one another. It ought to be clear. It ought to be clear. This begins with repentance and faith. <clears throat> we call this being born again, that old phrase. It means one who recognizes that they stand uh, in front of God without any hope except the fact that Jesus has died for us and we trust that we repent. That's at 180 degrees turning. Uh, I, I now see sin for what it is and I'm going to put my trust that God accepts what Jesus did for us. And that's how one is saved, is born again. But it's also reflected in following Jesus in water baptism. That's a command, by the way. It's the second command. Be saved, repent, and then be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, please let me know. We should follow the Lord in water baptism. He's called us to do that. That's one of our first public confessions of faith, and we were able to do that uh, several months ago, and that was just so wonderful to do. But also by becoming a member of a church. I believe that's scripture. I believe that's biblical. I believe we'd be part of a church where we are known and being cared for, and we're also using our gifts for that. And that's the third one is commit to serve and to support other believers through the use of your spiritual gifts. This is what a disciple does. It's what a disciple looks like. It's how we spend our time. We need to be involved in that. My friend, if you're disillusioned today, <clears throat> if you've been discouraged and distracted from following Christ from the things of God, if you've been diverted from your spiritual growth from following Christ, then would you confess that as sin? Would you recognize that then Jesus will forgive you of that sin and cleanse you? Would you rest in the goodness of the Father's amazing, wonderful grace? Being a disciple does not mean that I work harder. It means I rest harder in the grace of God. And by the grace of God, then I live out my surrendering of my rights. Commit to be a devoted follower of Christ. One who is not ashamed of the gospel. 
and one who does their best to present themselves as one approved by God who rightly handles the word of truth. Now, it's true that the Christian life is not one of ease and comfort. <clears throat> and I have to say, we say this sometimes, but I believe it's true. If you're living a life of comfort and ease with no problems, then you're probably not living the uncompromising, committed Christian life. You probably aren't. But Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, you've read this before. We looked at this several months ago. I believe it's here on the monitor. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We need to do that. That's the only way to be a disciple of Christ. It's not just to say Jesus is Lord. It's not just to say I accepted Jesus once. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's, that, that, that's, that's the principle. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I pray that there will be none here in our church that loses or forfeits their soul because they looked back they longed for something greater than Christ. Let us follow on. Follow him. Follow, follow. I would follow Jesus anywhere, everywhere. I would follow on. Would you follow him this morning? With every head bowed and every eye closed as the worship team comes up and Landon prepares for pastor's prayer. I just want to challenge you. I know it might have seemed you got beat up a little bit today, but I want to encourage you is that God's grace who makes us one of his child of makes us a child of God has called us to uncompromisingly commit to follow him. Would you do so this morning as you take a moment to pause, to consider, pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how can I become a true follower of Christ? Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.